I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division amongst you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Bridge Radio, and we are coming at you from the great state of Texas. I am your host, A.W. Varilla, and in front of me, like always, the president of this book factory, Steve Den Hartog. What's up, everybody? <laughs> Welcome back this morning. Yeah. Uh, again, we have another week of fall weather I that know. has been beautiful, especially Lovely. in this desert land of Laredo. But no, it's it's absolutely beautiful here. Um, so uh, what's what's new, Steve? Oh. Any any exciting news? Anything going on? We got lots of stuff going on. <laughs> lots of stuff. I know. I think like every week we do always have something new happening here. Uh, you know, the the other day uh, um, we came across some some delicious cake here at uh, at Bridge that your daughter makes. That uh, yeah, it's like. It's worth fighting for. Almost caused a little <laughs> domestic dispute, right? A little domestic oh, violence. So good stuff, yeah. good stuff. And the coffee is always great. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you for tuning in. Uh, this week we have author Megan Hill. Um, she is the author of, of a book uh, named A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. Um, and Megan, Megan Hill has written several books, but, uh, we are super excited to have her on. Um, I really love, uh, this book that we're going to be talking about today, uh, about what it looks like to be in a church and loving one another in a church. And how timely is that right now? Right? Absolutely. Especially that we have, uh, we've been away from our home church and not interacting with our brothers and sister in Christ. Exactly. And, and yeah, so uh, we're super excited to unpack this today. Um, and yeah, can't wait. I hope you guys really enjoy this podcast. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to Apple, Android, Google, and Stitcher Radio. And please visit our website at bridgemanlaredo.org. And again, we are still, still collecting funds for our building. Uh, so um, if you guys uh, are interested in teaming up with Bridge Ministry, uh, please visit our website at bridgemanlaredo.org and go down to the giving tab. And partner up with us um, in, in this uh, whole journey uh, uh, for the kingdom. Bringing yeah. the gospel to South Texas and Mexico. That's what we're about here. Yeah, so. and giving Bible to people around the, the globe as well. You bet. Yeah. So, all right, Steve, we're ready to get this podcast Let's started? Let's do it. All right. Megan Hill is author of Praying Together, The Priority and Privilege of Prayer in Our Homes, Community, and Churches, and Contentment. Seeing God's Goodness. She also serves as editor of the Gospel Coalition, a pastor's wife and a pastor's daughter. She lives in Massachusetts with her husband and four children, where they belong to West Springfield Covenant Community Church. Welcome, Megan Hill, to Bridge Radio for the first time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Megan, I, I'm so happy that you're on. Uh, like, we were just talking a little bit uh, before we started re, um, uh, the show. Um, your book is just absolutely uh, coming in at a perfect time with just everything that is going on in this country and the world with COVID. Uh, you know, in the beginning, a lot of people were not assembling together. Uh, and I just 
as, as, as I was going through your book, I was like, oh man, like there's just so much here. I was like, we just can't, we just can't give this uh, whole podcast. Uh, we can't uh, go through your book and this podcast and give everything away. You know, we do want people to go, uh, and, uh, get your book. And it was, it's been such a blessing going through your book. Um, but before we start, uh, going through your book, uh, can you just share a little bit about yourself and how God drew you to saving faith? Sure. So I, um, had the privilege of growing up in, a home with believing parents um, who were faithful to teach me about the Lord. And so the Lord was very gracious to draw me to Himself at an early age. And mm-hmm. I can't remember a time uh, when I didn't love Christ. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, of course, you know, that um, my testimony has evolved uh, over time, and I've grown in my love for Christ and my knowledge of Him and my knowledge of His Word. He's gradually convicted me of sin through the years and things that, isn't it, isn't He so gracious not to convict us of all of our sin all at once and crush us, but gradually uh, revealing sin to me and um, giving me more and more of His Holy Spirit. And um, so uh, it's certainly uh, a progress, but I can't remember a time when I didn't know Christ, which is a great blessing to me. Yeah, I I don't want to jump ahead in your book, but I really like that on page thirty one in chapter two, you talk about your testimony, um, and what's and it really just hit me, uh, just because I grew up in a Christian church as well in a Christian home. Um, I love what you say is I fail to appreciate the fact that the same amazing grace saves every wretch, whether she, uh, she is four or forty years old. Um, and then you go we'll give an example about Abraham and then you you go and talk about Isaac and and how that worked out. And I really appreciated that you, you made that illustration in your book. Yeah, I definitely went through a period of my life where I felt like my testimony was sort of inferior because I didn't really have what seemed to me to be a dramatic story of coming to faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and. But you're right, I did come to this place where I realized that all of our stories are dramatic in the (laughs) sense that we were all lost, and Christ found us and made us alive. And what could be more dramatic than that? Um, And the outward circumstances of it are actually sort of small drama compared to the spiritual drama that occurs when God changes our hearts and draws us to Him in saving faith. Yeah, and that's always amazing for sure. Um, So Megan, what led you to write this book? I came to write this book um, after reading sort of various stories of people um, doing what we would call deconverting or leaving the Christian faith. And um, sort of sadly, uh, in recent years, there have been a number of prominent Christians uh, in various spheres who have walked away from the Christian faith. And oftentimes, part of that story is a walking away from the church. Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes we also have stories of people who d- would say that they're still Christians, but who, for whatever reason, have left their church and no longer find it to be um, the you know, a place of spiritual good for them. Mm. And so I, I was reading these stories, um, books and blog posts and interviews. And um, on the one hand, I felt very sort of sad about this, that there are these people who have become so disillusioned with the church that they've left it all together. Mm. But on the other hand, I could sort of understand in the sense that, you know, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you realize that it's an uncomfortable place to be sometimes. Mm. It can be a hurtful place to be. 
Um, it can be kind of a boring place to be, an awkward place to be. And so sort of feeling like the church isn't all it's cracked up to be is kind of a common experience that we all have. And so having read these and thinking kind of about my own experience in the church, uh, I was sort of trying to wrestle down, what does the scripture say about the church? What's true about the church? And on those hard days, when the church feels uncomfortable, or when we're, we've been hurt by it, or when we just don't feel like getting up on a Sunday morning, what is it that can encourage our hearts to commit ourselves to the local church? And so I came to write this book, sort of exploring what the Bible says about the church, and then how that can kind of shape our experience in the church. Yeah, I just love how you just uh, get into specifics in your book and and, and how we can look uh, look at the church um, as a whole and, and and what's involved with that in our in our in our daily uh, or our weekly interactions or you know maybe discipleship interactions um, and. And in, 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 the, in chapter one of your book, you start off with the title "Beloved," loving the people of God, uh, loving the people God loves. Excuse me. And uh, you go on to you go on to say um, that God loves His people towards who are His own. God has a real heart uh, of affection and delight and settled commitment to sacrificially seeking their good and a desire a desire to see them grow in holiness. Why is it important for uh, us as Christian, as, uh, uh, as we are at church and fellowshipping to grow in holiness? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly what the Lord loves to do in us, you know, and mm. Ephesians talks about the Christ came to redeem the church and to make her holy with the washing of water and blood and present her pure and spotless before him. And so that's certainly God's goal for us, that we would grow in holiness, that we would become more like Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think we often sometimes think about growing in holiness on, sort of on a personal level. You know, I have these particular sins I'm dealing with, and I'm, you know, I'm working to defeat them and to grow in love for God and mm -hmm. Christ-likeness in myself. But of course, in the book, I'm talking about it through the lens of, as a church, how we help one another to grow in holiness and yeah. how really the church is designed to encourage us in holiness. And so we don't need to feel sort of alone in that, but to know that God has placed us in this whole group of people that he's making holy alongside us and using to encourage us in Christlikeness. Yeah. And, and I, and I love the illustration, uh, excuse me, you say that in uh, Jude encouraged the church that they are called beloved and kept. And Paul reminds them that they are both holy and beloved. Um, and I appreciate how just scripture centered your book is. Um, you, and you also say that God loves his, excuse me, God's love for his people is eternal. I have a love for you with an everlasting love. Um, and I, and I found that just extremely just encouraging, um, as, um, um, as a church to be loving one another and then reminding ourselves that God loves us. Uh, cause I forget that. Uh, I, I, I mm -hmm. sometimes look at him as this, just, he's God, you know, I'm, I'm here, you know, he's holy. I'm not. And I got to remind myself that he does love me with an ever everlasting love. And that that's true too, of the people in the church around you too. I think, you know, if you have a friend who says to you, Oh, 
I really want you to meet this person, this other person. I, I think you're just really going to like them. And I just really like them. And I, I need to get you guys together because I think this is going to be great. Well, you're automatically predisposed to go, oh, I'm really looking forward to this coffee date because I I thought I'm going to like this person. My friend says <laughs> she really likes him and I'm going to really like him, right? So that's kind of what we have when we come into the church. We have all these people that God has chosen for himself. And he's sort of saying to us, look, here's this whole group of people that I really love, and I want you to get to know them. And so we should come into it with that same sense of expectation, like, oh, these are people God's picked out for himself and for me, and I think this is going to be great. kind of makes us optimistic about those people, that God loves them, and so we're predisposed to love them, too. Yeah, but but we forget that, don't we? Like, I just, like, we forget that. Sometimes uh, we don't come in with that attitude, you know? I, I would hope that I do all the time, but, you know, sometimes I, we, we got brothers and sisters that rub us the wrong way. And we're like, oh, hold on a second. I got to I gotta love them, you know, because love God loved me, you know. Yeah, and we tend to think that we are so lovable and <laughs> we are quick to think of other people as unlovable. But yeah. um, the truth is none of us are very lovable. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. Um in the same chapter, uh, Megan, you go on uh, and have different, you got about uh, five points, uh, loving the people of God, God loves. Uh, one, you start off with loving the unlovely, lovely, uh, loving sacrificially, love that makes us lovely. Uh, God loves, uh, God loves in us and belonging to the beloved. Um, I don't know if you just want to touch on a couple of those uh, in, in your, in your chapter, um, and just kind of give a, just a, a little qu- quick, brief, um, explanation of just that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that when we look at how God loves us in, which is displayed in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So that he sent Christ, um, and Christ came at great cost to himself and took on human flesh and died the death on the cross on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. Well, when we look at what was done for us, our love for the church sort of models that or mirrors that. And so we're coming into a group of people who, as we just said, are not necessarily lovely. Sometimes they're awkward. Usually they're pretty ordinary. And there's not necessarily anything attractive or powerful or wonderful about them, except that we know that God has loved them. And then we're called to love them sacrificially um, in a way that mirrors Christ's own love for us. And so we give up our own priorities. We give up our time. We give up our emotional energy. We give up our money. We give up our attentiveness to other people and our own personal concerns in favor of someone else's concerns. And so we love sacrificially within the local church, even as God and Christ has loved us. And then, you know, there is this sense in which when, as God loves us in Christ, He makes us lovely, and He makes mm-hmm. us holy, and He gives us His Spirit, and that we're transformed by the love of God in us. And, of course, we can't transform other people in the same way that God transforms us, but I do think that there's a sense in which the Church, loving one another, is lovely, 
and that the church that when people from the community come and have an encounter with our church, they come to a worship service, they come to an event, they see people in the church, they should sort of see like, oh, these people love each other. Oh, this is attractive, you know. Mm-hmm. And so even as we love one another in the local church, it has this sort of evangelistic, sort of this radiant attractiveness then that hopefully the Lord will use to draw other people to come in. Yeah, I can't, uh, it's just reminded me of, uh, we interviewed uh, Rosario Rosario Butterfield, um, and she was just telling us how she started loving her neighbor. I know that we were talking about in the context of the church, but um, I was, that just came in my mind, how she was just loving her unbelieving uh, neighbor, and how just that was uh, absolutely uh, revolutionary to her neighbor. Like, why is this person uh, loving me and serving me as, as my neighbor? And, 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 and it drew them to Christ. So, I, yeah. Um, I want to move on to the church. Um, uh, why is it important to gather in ecclesia or church or church and ecclesia? Yeah. So the word ecclesia in um, the Greek, in the Bible, is a word for gathering. Mm -hmm. So what we think of as church actually has sort of this meaning of coming together and gathering. And um, so really we're the most properly the church when we're together and um, doing the things that God has called us to do most importantly, worshiping, but then also living and working together as God's people. Um, And so it is important uh, for us to be together as we're able, of course, you know, we're speaking during this time of coronavirus and Mm. in every place, in every church, the situation is slightly different, what's safe, what's legal, you know, but um, that sort of aside, it is important for God's people to come together. And when we come together, we worship him together as sort of his gathered people as a subject, you know, he's the king and we're the subjects of the king come to hear him speak to us in his word and offer our worship to him. It's the place that we really care for one another. And, you know, in Colossians, Paul talks about um, speaking to one another, exhorting one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, even as we're worshiping, we're worshiping God, but we're also encouraging the people around us. And Mm -hmm. we're praying for one another, and we're building one another up and uh, expressing love for one another. You know, Paul, all those times that he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, you know, greet the brothers by name. We're speaking to one another, expressing affection for one another. And then that, in turn, does have this evangelistic effect as well, that, you know, even our unbelieving neighbors, as they pass by the church building and see the cars in the parking lot or the crowd gathered outside or whatever, they they notice, oh, these people are coming together for a purpose, and perhaps it stirs their interest to know what it is that we do and what's so important that we would give up our Sunday mornings to be together. Yeah. Um, yeah, so true. Um, I, I wanted to touch on uh, a little bit, a little bit in the section uh, in this chapter about pew letting. Um, you go on to say <laughs> in 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 page forty four, in every church I belong to, from three thousand members downtown congregation to the ninety member church farm, out in the farm country, the members each had a certain place they always sit 
we tease one another about our assigned seat, but none of us really want to move. <laughs> and um, you went ahead and gave some uh, history on pew letting. You said if a medieval Christian, uh, sorry, excuse me, if medieval Christian referred to my pew, she meant it quite literally. In the centuries following the Reformation, British and American churches installed seating throughout their building. These church-owned bench were then rented to members, and pew-letting became the primary means of funding the church operating costs. I did not know that. Yeah, it's crazy. So in medieval times, churches, church buildings had no seats, so you had to bring your own seat. Like, you would bring a stool or a chair or something or a mat, and you would actually bring your own chair to church. And then following the Reformation, then they started actually putting chairs in church buildings, but you would, um, then they would sort of let them or rent them out to people. They didn't actually take an offering in the church service like we're familiar with. They, that's how they um, funded the church costs was by renting these pews. And, um, and so uh, they did that for centuries, and then eventually it kind of fell out of favor. And there were some legitimate concerns, I think, about class distinctions mm. and um, economic distinctions and that kind of thing, um, which I understand. But... The thing that I like about just thinking about that idea of sort of having your own seat, you know, the seat that you've paid for, as it were, the place where you are, is there is a certain commitment to that. Like, Mm. that's the place where I'm going to show up. And I know, you know, in my own church, as I said, we joke about, oh, well, you're always sitting in the same place. But, you know, that's the place where it just feels right, you know, and I know, you know, the the guy that's in front of me, he sings bass, and I sing, you know, and we it, it just sounds right when we sing. And then yeah. I can see the pastor from where I'm sitting, and that's always the angle that I see him from, and the people, you know. And it's just, it's sort of like I'm committed to, to being in this place, sort of like in your house, you know, you have your mm. favorite chair or your seat at the dinner table. Yeah. I don't know, why do we always sit at the same seat at the dinner table, but we just do. And in the church, it's sort of like that. I'm committed to being here. I'm committed to worshiping here. And so I'm not saying you have to sit in the same place every week, but I'm saying it's not all that bad, actually. No. uh, And I must confess, uh, you know, um, I am from up north um, and and from Chicago and moved down here to a border town. Um, I would sit in the same spot at my church back in Chicago and I wouldn't move. And I must confess the same brother did the same in front of me and his and his family. And when we were singing, sometimes I would get into a singing competition like with him. Like I wanted to out sing him, you know, and <laughs> and and it was hilarious, you know, and I was just like, you know, I was like, all right, today I'm going to have to, you know, bring it because, you know, and, and and I joke about that. But, um, man, I you're absolutely right when the focus that um, I would have because I knew that I would be in the same spot and just worshiping our, our Lord. Uh, there was this, this, abs- this feeling that I would always have, like it was comforting. I, I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. I really like though, how you uh, um, have an example of your usual seat in heaven and you compare that on page 52, you say, but whether your but whether your church has historically significant pews, custom seating, or or metal folding chair, your seat in church is more than it appears. It's more than the place where you lay your Bible and collect your casserole dishes. It's even more than the place where you regularly worship alongside the 10 or hundreds of thousand member of your local church. If you belong to Christ, your seat in church is not just a seat in church. It's a seat in heaven. I was like, 
whoa, I have never even looked at it like that. And that was a very powerful statement. Yeah, and I'm drawing that from Hebrews 12. Mm -hmm. um, And yeah, that's a thought that I love to have too. You know, the author of Hebrews says, you know, when you come to worship, you're not just coming to the place on earth where you are. You're coming to Mount Zion, to the assembly of the angels, to the spirits of the just made perfect, to Christ, our mediator. And so he sort of piles up these images of that when you're worshiping, you're really drawn up into this heavenly worship. And, you know, some older writers used to talk about the church as a colony of heaven or an outpost of heaven. Mm. And I think that's true that, you know, um, you know, an embassy building or whatever that you have, um, you know, when you go, you pass the embassies in D.C. or in New York City or whatever, those are um, sort of outposts of those foreign nations. And that building is actually belongs to that other country. And um, that's sort of the way the church is. You know, when we're gathered together as the church, we actually don't really belong to whatever city or town we happen to be meeting in. We really belong to heaven. And what mm. we do there is heavenly business. Yeah. And I think that can encourage us, right? Because sometimes we come to church and, oh, there's not as many people as usual, or, oh, you know, the weather's bad, so people didn't get out, or it's, you know, kind of an off week or whatever. But there's more going on than just appears and really there's heavenly business going on here. And I think that can encourage us that what we're doing is important. Yeah, no, so true. How easily we can get distracted, you know, when we're going into church. Uh, So Megan, how do you see the role of a shepherd in the church today? Yeah, I was super helped. I read a book um, for elders actually um, by uh, a pastor named Timothy Whitmer. And he says that, um, Shepherds, pastors, elders, church leaders, you know, that they have four jobs, um, and he relates it sort of to shepherding work, but he says it's knowing, feeding, guiding, and protecting. And I think that can be helpful, um, knowing, you know, that the shepherds of the church are responsible for knowing the sheep, the people in the congregation, feeding, that they're responsible for nourishing them, and of course, A physical shepherd feeds food to the sheep, but a a spiritual shepherd feeds the Word of God in counsel and preaching and teaching and um, care for the sheep, guiding um, in directing them where they should go. And I think that, you know, as we have questions and concerns, that we can come to our shepherds and ask for guidance. That's why God gave them to us. And then protecting and, um, you know, an actual physical shepherd beats off the wolves and the bears, but a spiritual <laughs> shepherd, um, you know, guards, guards the church against false teaching, against things that would be harmful to their souls. And so um, they, they have sort of this work that very much resembles the work of a, of a shepherd with sheep. No, yeah, and I love how you give the example of uh, your elders um, in the first uh Uh, page 57 you say sitting in a circle with a door shut those six or eight men do something that is outwardly unimpressive they close their door and uh i'm sorry uh they close their eyes bow their heads and pray taking turns leading aloud they petition petition to the lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word for equipping the saints and the salvation of the elect um man how how amazing that is that your shepherds, your, uh, your elders are praying for the flock um, before church begins as part of one part of their 
uh, of their ministry and their, their calling. So I, I, I found that statement just so, so inspiring. Yeah, and it's so encouraging to me. A few times I've had an elder text me afterwards or speak to me and say, you know, we prayed about this for you today. And just to know that mm. um, the the leaders of God's people know me, they know my concerns, and they're bringing them before the Lord. I like how you say that uh, the prophet Ezekiel condemned the religious leader who ought to have been feeding and protecting the sheep of Israel but instead fed themselves and allowed the sheep to become prey. Uh, this is the section that you have a flock needs to be shepherd. And how important that is that uh, uh, a shepherd is not being selfish and worried about itself. Uh, there's danger in that. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we join a church, when we commit to a church, looking at the shepherds that are there and considering whether they are biblically qualified is essential, um, that we not get ourselves in a position where we're part of a church where the shepherds are not really shepherds, where they're really wolves and they're bad for the sheep. And, you know, really examining those biblical qualifications for shepherds and making sure that we commit to a church where that's true of the shepherds. Yeah. And, I really like that you point out that no no shepherd is perfect. Um, and you talk a little bit about in, in the section and you say that um, that they knew that they you were telling a story of a young uh, pastor uh, coming in and how the congregation and the elders supported the new, this new pastor and encouraging and encouraging him. Um, but you you go on to say that they knew that he was imperfect and inade- inadequate even, but they trusted that he was a good gift from the perfect shepherd. So they followed him with joy. Um, just really recognizing that God had put the shepherd in that church and that uh, there was uh, this humbleness uh, to him uh, to uh, help him out through um, uh, the new position that he was in and and coming alongside of him uh, in so many ways, I thought was really amazing uh, to, to to see that in your book and tell that story. Because uh, I'm I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, pastors or elders um, out there that do do that, you know, especially when you have a transition in a church. Yeah, and we do recognize that you know in the church we're we're works in progress, and uh, both the elders and the people are works in progress, and uh, Christ is working in each of our hearts, and you're right. I mean, there are basic biblical qualifications, but you you are not going to have any perfect elders, and they need our prayers and our love, even as Christ is working in them, just like He's working in us. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a difficult calling. Um, I, I would I know that's not where I'm supposed to be, but man, just dealing with all the dynamics of just personalities and just issues and, 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 and be able to flock that and love that, love the people and and manage through that. That's, that's a hard task for sure. Now, as we move on and uh, man, this time has gone just by really fast. What is, what would you uh, want to tell our listening audience? uh, The most encouraging uh, thing uh, about writing this book and how how it might help out uh, somebody who might just be struggling with uh, being at a church or going through church or you know um, just kind of feeling that 
um, I guess I'm just having a hard time articulating that right now. Um, just not very inspired in being in a church. Yeah, one of the most encouraging things that I realized as I was writing this book was sort of the example of the Apostle Paul. Mm. And of course, you know, um, the Apostle Paul was the writer of the majority of the New Testament, you know, by divine inspiration, but the author of it, um, that he planted churches throughout the known world. He was uh, you know, evangelistically zealous. He equipped pastors and elders in these churches and fervent in prayer. And um, he's a very, you know, sort of mighty figure in the early church. And yet, as we look through his writings, we recognize that his experiences in the local church were sometimes really disappointing and sometimes downright hurtful. And, um, you know, he talked in some of his later letters, like in Second Timothy, he talks about how he was imprisoned and he stood trial and no Christians came and helped him. Nobody came with him to court, to this major court appointment. Um, he talks about how everyone had deserted him mm. and no one was standing with him. Um, you know, and then in other letters, we see that people were accusing him of preaching just for the money. People were accusing him of preaching a false gospel. You know, so he sort of suffered a lot of hurt in the church, not to mention all the beatings and the shipwrecks and everything he experienced from those outside the church. Yeah. And so here, Paul is somebody that we can turn to when we have been hurt in the church or when we're disappointed in the church, because he's somebody who has had those very same experiences and often um, sort of much more even um, dramatically hurtful than our own experiences. And yet... Paul was incredibly optimistic about the church, yeah. and he is the one who, you know, he calls the Corinthians saints. He calls them holy ones. And, yeah. you know, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, I mean, they had incest. They had people who were, like, stealing the Lord's Supper before anybody else could get to it, and they were fighting, and they were, you know, involved in prostitution, and they were, you know, I mean, they had problems in Corinth. And yet, he calls them the holy ones, because he recognizes God is making these people holy. And it might not look like it right now, but God is making them holy. And so he was willing to affirm that and call them the saints. You know, he calls the church beloved again and again. He says in his letters how often he wants to see the churches and be with them. And he just overflows with love for the churches. And how, well, how is this? He had these bad experiences, and yet he's saying these really positive, loving things about the church. Well, I think that the Apostle Paul was transformed by what God said was true about the church, and he believed, Lord, if these are the people you love, then I'm going to love them too. If these are the people you are making holy, then I am going to believe that you are making them holy. You know, he committed himself to what God said was true. And I think in our hard days in the church, whether it's active hurt or whether it's just I'm not feeling it right now, mm. we need to return to what God says is true about the church and ask Him to help us to believe and act on it as true, even as the Apostle Paul did. Wow, yeah, that's absolutely uh, wonderful. Yeah, and I love that part uh, that part in your book when you were just talking about uh, Paul and uh, how he was aban abandoned, but yet at the same time he was being op optimistic of, of, of the church. Megan, uh, Romans 10.14 says, How would they call on him who they have not believed? And how would they believe in whom he have not heard? And how would they hear without a preacher? 
Um, can you share the gospel with our worldwide audience today? Yes, I would love to. So the gospel tells us that we are all very bad and that we have all rebelled against God and wanted nothing to do with Him and have broken His law in a thousand different ways, and we are in a very bad place. And God, who is the creator of the universe, is rightly displeased with us, and we are under His wrath and subject to His judgment. And yet, and yet, He was so gracious. And when we were in this position of rebelling against Him and hating Him, He sent His Son Uh, the Lord Jesus, who became a man who was fully God and yet took on human flesh and entered into our human condition and lived a life of perfect obedience and died a death on the cross to pay the price for our rebellion against God. And that all who look to Christ in faith, who trust in Him, who claim His work for themselves and look to God to forgive them for their sins, can have new life in Christ and will be given the Holy Spirit, and will be reconciled to God, and will have a new life of um, belonging to and being loved by God. And that is our hope, is in Christ Himself, uh, who paid the penalty for our sins. And I would encourage your listeners to look to Him in faith, and to search out uh, Christ in the Scriptures, and find out who He is, and uh, to make Him their own by faith. Wow. Amen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, please go out and get A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church uh, by Megan Hill. Um, and this is by Crossway. Um, Megan, where can people find you if you want to be found, as I always say, uh, if you're on social media? I, or, or... I am on. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And so they can look me up there, Megan Hill, and I would be happy to connect with people there. Yeah, and uh, for our listeners, I, I think you you guys need to go get this book. Um, I mean, I think doing this uh, book in a group would be awesome, um, just going through and it. And there are study questions at the end, mm-hmm. so it is designed that you could do it in a group. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners, uh, please go out and get the book. Uh, I think you'll be definitely blessed uh, going through the book with, with, with a group of brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Megan, thank you very much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes this week's episode. Again, um, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church by Megan Hill. uh, And the publisher is Crossway. Please, please go get it and uh, support Megan and her book. I we, we didn't even get to go through uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, again, we only have so much time, but uh, uh, like she said, uh, like she said, there's study questions in the back, um, and and I think that you guys will definitely enjoy what she has to say about the church um, and, and and loving one another as as brothers and sisters in Christ and supporting one another. Uh, and, and do it in a way that it just becomes uh, super encouraging uh, for the local body and for uh, the brothers and sisters who uh, we worship uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, don't forget to follow us up, uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, and I want to say thank you very much to all our listeners around the globe. 
and uh, and I hope everybody is doing well uh, as we are starting to come out a little bit out of this uh, coronavirus uh, and lockdowns and 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 I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that have been uh, absolutely uh, uh, hurt by, uh, by 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 what's been going on. You know, maybe loss of family. Um, just remember that we're praying for you. We're praying for your families and your friends and your church. Uh, and if you guys need anything, please, please don't forget to reach out to us here at Bridge uh, Ministries. Well, guys, as we always uh, end the show, uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Till next week. Later. Later.